0: and today we're in chapter 14 we're about halfway through the story Uh, we have 31 messages in this particular series and i just want to say the next two weeks we're going to take a little break uh, for christmas and new years with what we have coming up and then we'll resume our study in the story on january 6th when we come back in the new year so today we're going to pick up and we're going to talk about A Kingdom Torn in Two as you saw on that DVD and let me pray for us as we begin. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the lessons that it contains and this chapter that we read today in this series of chapters in the scripture are difficult. They show a people in rebellion against you. They show what happens when people try to live life apart from you. And Father, I pray that we would hear what you have to say to us today, that we would learn the lessons that are here for us, and put into practice your word in a way that will make a difference not only in our life, but in the lives of our children and our children's children. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, Sarah Groves, a Christian music artist, wrote a song called Generations. Generations. And she had been reading in the book of Deuteronomy those passages about the blessings and the curses, the blessings that come when we walk with God and the curses that can come when we don't follow God and His ways and how that can pass on even to our children and their children. And she wrote this song, and one of the choruses says this. It says, Remind me of this with every decision. Generations will reap what I sow. I can pass on a curse or a blessing to those I will never know. Now there's a lot of truth in what she is saying there in that statement. And we're going to see that played out in this chapter where the decisions of one person affect not only them but all the people around them and affect the nation and the generations to come. Last week in our uh, study of this series we looked at Solomon. Solomon. We talked about the importance of finishing well in our walk with God, and we saw that Solomon did not finish well. He started out humbly. He asked God for wisdom. God granted him wisdom. And God also allowed him to prosper and for the nation to grow. But the Scripture said that as he grew older, his wives turned his hearts after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And Solomon began to worship other gods, idols that were set up in the land. And not only that, Solomon ruled his people unwisely. He taxed them severely. He pressed them into hard labor to pay for his projects. And the people came to a point where they had had enough. And when Solomon died, we read how his son Rehoboam becomes king. And the people came to him asking, For relief asking that their load be made lighter well we also saw that there is a rival in this story and his name is Jeroboam it's kind of interesting Rehoboam Jeroboam it must have been common at that time to have names that ended with Boam just like we go through cycles on names of children that we use and kind of each generation as well and so here are these two men Jeroboam was one of Solomon's officials And because of Solomon's sin a prophet had come to Jeroboam and told him that he would be king of Israel in the future But he must wait for that time Well Jeroboam was impatient He didn't wait and he rebelled against Solomon and Solomon tried to kill him And because Solomon was the king at that time Jeroboam had to flee to Egypt for safety Now that Solomon had died, Jeroboam returned. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 12. I'd like to read for us verses 1 to 11. It's on page 193 if you have your copy of the story here. It's chapter 12 in 1 Kings. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard this, He was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. And so they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. He needed time to think. All right? And then Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And they replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. And he asked them, "'What is your advice? "'How should we answer these people who say to me, "'Lighten the yoke your father put on us?' "'And the young man who had grown up with him replied, "'Tell these people who have said to you, "'Your father put a heavy yoke on us, "'but make our yoke lighter. "'Tell them, my little finger is thicker "'than my father's waist. "'My father laid on you a heavy yoke. "'I will make it even heavier. "'My father scourged you with whips.' I will scourge you with scorpions. So here is this young man who has become king. He's presented with this opportunity, really, to govern his people wisely. And he chooses to reject the advice of the elders. And he listens to these young men who have grown up with him, who are also a little bit rash in their counsel. The result was that the people rebelled, and the kingdom of Israel was divided. Jeroboam will become the king of the northern ten tribes of Israel. He would establish his capital in Shechem, which is in Samaria. And there he would set up golden calves to be worshipped at Bethel and Dan. And we we hear that and we go, now, hasn't this happened before? I mean, really? He's setting up golden calves to be worshipped and say that these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt? I mean, hasn't God already given his opinion on this matter by the things that happened to Israel in the past? And yet that's what he does because he doesn't want the people to go back down to Jerusalem to worship or they may remember that they once were a united people and their hearts might turn back to the Lord. Rehoboam then becomes king over Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom. But why did this happen? Was it just a bad decision by Rehoboam who should have listened to his elders? I mean, that's what we see when we look on the human level on this lower story. We kind of think, boy, that was a really dumb decision. If he had just listened to those elders, this would have been different. But in the upper story where God is at work, we see more going on. And we see that this is a result of God's judgment upon them as a nation. What was the real reason for the division? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. And what we see first of all is God's statement that idolatry will not be tolerated. Idolatry will not be tolerated. Rehoboam did make a poor decision, but the real reason for the division was that Solomon's heart had turned away from God. Solomon's heart was divided, as we read about in the last chapter. In fact, I'm going to read a little bit of that from chapter 11, verses 9 to 12. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And so what was happening here was exactly what God said he was going to do because of Solomon's sin. Solomon forgot rule number one. You shall have no other gods before me. He had forgotten the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments. And not only that, Solomon also ignored the instructions that were given to kings in Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, as part of the covenant, there were these instructions given that when you have a king, this king should follow my word and he should not do these things. Don't acquire great numbers of horses or you will put your confidence in your army and think that's your security and the reason that you are uh, going to do okay. And he said, don't take many wives because they will turn your heart astray to worship other gods. It's all right there as plain as day. And don't accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. You know, this isn't all for you. Don't oppress your people in such a hard way that you build up these things rather than caring for the people who are part of your nation. And finally, do this, though. Do keep a copy of God's Word with you and read it every day the king was to have his personal copy of the law that he had written out and that was to be read to him by the priest or that he was to look at every single day so that he would follow what God had said in his word. And Solomon forgot that. He ignored it. And his heart was turned aside to other gods. Now here's the question that I have for us though. Have we forgotten rule number one? What is our God? And I think about that both as a nation and as individuals. You know, some might say that uh, God in America is uh, sex or sexual pleasure. Some might say that it is power, the desire for more and more things or influence. But many, in fact most, as I have read, feel that the problem in America today really is a problem of money and greed if you think about the last economic recession that we are still trying to get out of what was it that really caused a lot of that was the corruption that was there in banking and in Wall Street and could it be that greed is the reason for our troubles in America and that it will continue until we turn to God in repentance what about us though It isn't just Wall Street that has a problem with greed. We don't always see it in ourselves either. Because we tend to compare ourselves with those that are like us, kind of in the same group that we would put ourselves in and think that, you know, we're pretty, pretty good. We're just about average right here. In fact, most Americans see themselves as more middle class. Very few see themselves as wealthy or prosperous in that sense. And we don't look at the rest of the world that lives on, in many cases, about 50% of the world lives on $2 a day or less. We compare ourselves with those, again, who are like us. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, writes that, as a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin, almost, I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, Pastor, I spend too much money on myself. And I think that my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. I would agree. You know, I think about all of the things that people have talked to me about through the years, and I don't ever recall someone coming to me and talking about that they have a problem in the area of money, of spending too much, or desiring too many things, or always wanting more and more stuff. I think it's something that affects all of us as Americans, and we just don't really see it. And what is the antidote to that? The Scripture would tell us that generosity is the antidote to greed. Look at what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6. It will be up on the screen here. In chapter 6, beginning of verse 6, he said, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. You know, I always stumble on that. Because that seems... Like so little, doesn't it? I mean, if you just have food and clothing to be content with that, and yet he's saying that we should. That anything above that is just a blessing of God. Even to have those basic provisions of food and clothing are a gift from God. And he warned that people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires, that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul was saying it back then, that people who just wanted more and more stuff were spending long hours at work, or trying to get more, or get ahead, or cheating, or stealing, or however they could to acquire more stuff for themselves, were walking away from the faith. And so he said, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul's saying if you really want to live, if you really want to experience joy in life and God's favor and his blessing, then be a generous giver. Learn to give. Generosity is the antidote to greed. That's why I would also say that tithing is good for our soul. Tithing is good for our soul because it reminds us that everything that we have is a gift from God. And that at the very least, we should give back to Him what He asks of us in terms of uh, giving to him 10% of what we make and giving that back to the Lord. But for many of us, we can do even more in our tithes and our offerings as we not only support the ministry of the church, but also the ministry of other uh, missionaries and agencies that we are a part of. And when we do that, God blesses and he provides for us. The work continues and we all share in that giving and learning to give is a part of growing as a disciple in Jesus Christ and God wants to bring us all to that point where we would be generous givers secondly God's plan will not be thwarted from our lower story perspective the division of the kingdom looks like a bad thing and it is a bad thing but it doesn't put God's plan at risk God is still on the throne And when we see evil things happening in our world or when we see our economy struggling, we need to remember that, that God is still God. He's still sovereign. He is still on His throne in heaven. In this division of the kingdom, the northern kingdom will have 19 kings. All of them will be bad. It's a tragic story of that northern kingdom that will walk farther and farther away from God. And when we read through First and Second Kings, or we read through the books of Chronicles, we get these summary statements on their life that says things like, their heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, or they did more evil than the nations God had driven out before them, or they did more evil than the kings who were before them. And you'll see this spiral that goes down and down until finally the northern kingdom will be destroyed by Assyria in an invasion and they will be carried off and deported from the land. The southern kingdom will last longer. They will have 20 kings with a mixed review, though. Some good, most bad. Only six would have positive comments made about them. And the southern kingdom would be reduced down to where it would look like the promise was hanging by a thread. I mean, when Hezekiah was the king of Judah and the Assyrians came in and they were sweeping in and overrunning the northern kingdom, it looked like they were going to be destroyed too and Jerusalem would fall. And God gave word through the prophet Isaiah that the Assyrians would come in like a flood up to the neck. But Hezekiah would not drown, and Jerusalem would not fall. And the promise of God was hanging by a thread at that point in history. And yet God was totally in control. The Assyrian nation would fall, and their army would be destroyed in one night by an angel of the Lord who came, and 185,000 men died. It was. A miracle of God's providence and protection of Judah at that time. You see what we see in these stories of scripture as bad as things get there is we still see a sovereign God whose plan will not be thwarted. None of that none of these circumstances would prevent God's son from coming to earth in fulfillment of the promises that were made to David. Jesus would be born. And we also see in the New Testament a similar truth. In the New Testament, Jesus said to Peter and the disciples that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Matthew 16. I will build my church. Jesus is saying, I will do it. And there may be times when it looks bleak in our culture. It may look like the world is winning and the church is losing. It may look like the the church is being overrun. But you can go through history and you will see that nations will come and go. And the church remains. And God's work continues. And Jesus will build his church. With or without us. And the question really is, will we be part of it? And wouldn't you rather be a part of what he is doing and join with him in his work than rebel against him and miss out on what God is going to do as he establishes this kingdom that will last forever? You know, when I see God's kingdom advancing in our world, it always brings great joy to my heart. And we are living in this age where we're seeing this tug of war and both sides going on, and we see the presence of evil in our world, but we also see the kingdom advancing in other parts of the world as well as what God is doing here in our community. This week I was involved in a phone call with Pastor Obispo, who's down in Guatemala, in the church that we have partnered with and it is just such a blessing every month to hear his reports on what God is doing there they just had a a big outreach in their village in early December and we prayed for them and uh, he was sharing the praises of how God used that they invited the mayors and the, the mayor and the city council and they invited people from the community had a big celebration and shared the gospel and handed out bibles and god used that in a tremendous way in their community but also their young men and women who have been trained here and we've been a part of that training through uh, the uh, ministry of Pollo that we support uh, they have been raised up now and they are going out to surrounding villages in that whole valley and they are sharing the gospel, they are teaching children, they are planting churches and it's just so exciting to hear the work that God is doing through them. And Pastor Obispo said this, with tears in his eyes, he expressed how grateful he is for our support, our prayers, and our encouragement. And he said, even though we are separated by many miles, we have you in our heart, and we pray for you continually. What a blessing that is. And you participate in that when you give to the church. You participate in what God is doing in parts of the world that we may never visit or go to. Some of us will have the privilege to be there, and others will not. And you will just know them through the reports or the pictures that are shared, and you'll hear the testimonies, but you share in the work. I love what Job said at the end of Job in chapter 42 when he said to God, I know that you can do all things, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. I want to join with God in the work that he is doing, because that is the work that's going to last forever. And thirdly, this passage teaches us that my decisions and my behavior will affect generations to come. The things that we do today are going to affect those who follow behind us. Now, let's take a look at Psalm 78, verses 4 to 7. It'll be up here on the screen again, and I'd like to read it for us. In this psalm, the people of Israel said, We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children, so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. And then they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commands." God had instructed Israel to teach their children the word of the Lord. What we saw today with our kids up here singing and telling the story of Jesus' birth, it is an example of that. When you participate in the children's ministry, when you're involved in teaching our kids or our youth, you are helping to shape the next generation and to raise up future laborers in the church and in the ministry those decisions will have eternal consequences. You see, the decisions made by the kings of Israel and Judah affected their nation and the life of every single person in their kingdom, for good or bad. And our decisions also have ripple effects. They affect our family and the generations that follow. I want to give you a personal example of it as I was thinking about it this week. I have a picture that I want to show you of my grandfather, Ole Stanghelli when he was about 20 years old. And he came to this country from Norway. When he came, uh, his name was Ole. He was John's son. He could have been Ole Johnson, but instead he took the place name where he came from, a small farming and fishing village on the coast of Norway, it's on the west coast on one of the fjords, and that village is called Stanghelle, Norway. And he came from there to this country to start a new life. And it was a step of faith that he was taking, you know. He's leaving behind everything that he loved in his home country. And he is setting out. He was born in 1872, so it was the year 1892 that he came through America, uh, came to America. And like some of your ancestors, perhaps in the same way that they traveled here, he came through Ellis Island, you know, went through the whole immigration process, and then got on a train and came to where the sort of the frontier was at that time, as people were settling in northern Minnesota. And he got a job on the Great Northern Railroad, working between Crookston and Warren. And after he had worked there for them for a few years, he had earned enough money that he could buy a quarter of land, 160 acres of farmland. And if you know anything about Norway, you know that only about 8% of their land is tillable. Only about 8% of that country can be farmed. And so for people that grew up on farms to now have rich soil, farmland, was huge, huge. I mean, they could hardly fathom what it was like here, the contrast and the difference to be able to grow. And he started to farm that land, and in time, uh, God blessed, and he was able to later buy 880 acres closer to a river in an area where he could have both livestock and do the farming. God was providing for him. Well, I want to show you another picture of my grandfather when he was older. He would live to be 90 years old. And I knew him more like this, because I was only seven years old when he died. And I remember my grandfather as a man of faith. He is sitting there on his bed with a Bible, and it's a Bible that's been handed down to me. And it's a real treasure to have his Bible. My mom always talked about when she looked at it. You could tell that this was a Bible that was used. You know, it was well-worn through the years from his reading and study of the Word of God. I remember as a little child going in to see my grandfather when he was ill in those latter years. And, And he, in his thick Norwegian accent, would call me Rickard. And he would, you know, talk to me, and it was like meeting the patriarch of the family. And I was coming in there, and he would give me his blessing. He was a man who loved to give. He loved the Lord, and he was generous in his giving. He supported his local church. And one of his favorite ministries that he supported was Back to the Bible. He cared about missions and about what God was doing in the world, and that was something that was passed on to his children and his children's children. You know, when I think about only in the risk that he took, and I think about the legacy that he passed on to all of us, it still affects me and my children every day. You know, his willingness to come to this land would forever change our life. His faith, his deep love for God and his word was something that would be passed on to my father and to me and to our children. The importance of family and education, education was important to get a better life or to make the most of the gifts that you had been given. His values of hard work and saving and being thrifty or frugal in how you use your money. And his generosity in giving, whether it was to support the church or missions, was something that, you know, I just look at that and I feel like that's part of my DNA I mean, I just feel like that's the culture in which I grew up and the values that were passed on and just became part of who I am. And I think of that today, that, you know, we have those same opportunities. And I wonder, what will we pass on to our children and to the people around us As parents, what are we teaching our children about what's important in life and the values and the commitments that we have? Maybe you're single and maybe the influence you have is as a teacher or maybe you work with our kids in the student ministry or maybe you work with our children and you can pass on a legacy to them. Maybe it's as a coach or a teacher in the schools here uh, locally. Or maybe it's as a grandparent who is praying for your grandchildren. And maybe some of you didn't have that kind of example like I did. And you look at that and you wonder, what can I do? You can start today to start a legacy of faith that will be a blessing to future generations. And you can leave a legacy that would far surpass any monetary inheritance that you would ever leave behind. So many people are like that. They're concerned about wanting to leave something financially to their children or their children's children. But a far greater legacy would be a legacy of faith that is passed on to them where our kids would learn to love God and walk with Him. I think of what Sarah Groves wrote, and if I was better at singing, I'd sing it for you, but I'm just going to read it. She said, remind me of this, with every decision, generations will reap what I sow. I can pass on a curse or a blessing to those I will never know. What will we pass on to our children's children and to those we will never know? Let's pray.